Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Think Tank with Cliff Waldman. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host of this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Today's topic, productivity. It's one that I have have had a research um, um, history with in, in economics, and as somebody who studied manufacturing for much of my career, productivity is critical. Manufacturing has played an interesting, important, and never-changing role in productivity. But today, we're very lucky. Today, we're going to talk about McKinsey and Company's latest um, research on productivity, getting, as, as you might expect, quite a lot of attention out there. And we have the perfect guest. We have partnered with McKinsey and Company. Charles Atkins has been with McKinsey for 14 years. He is a partner in the, um, he's in, a partner in a big hotspot. In the Silicon Valley office of McKinsey, where he works, where he serves leading high-tech companies on strategy and growth. He is a leader in McKinsey's technology and growth, marketing and sales practices, where he develops and publishes McKinsey's perspective on go-to market and customer experience issues. During his time at the company, Charles has also worked on issues at the intersection of technology, economics, and finance through the McKinsey Global Institute. He's published several papers, including Debt and Deleveraging, Lions on the Move, The New Power Brokers, among others, and has conducted numerous speaking engagements across business, policy, and public sector audiences. As I said, he's been with the company for 14 years. Prior to McKinsey, Charles worked in the hedge fund industry in quantitative trading strategies. He has an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business and a Bachelor of Business Science from the University in Cape Town. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cliff. Great to be here. I'm going to do what I always do when we talk about a piece of research that my guest or guests uh, do is I, I simply want you to, you know, I, 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 I love the way what McKinsey has uh, on, on their website because you get to both read and hear the paper, and I did both. And it's amazing how you get different perspectives doing both. So what I'm going to ask you to do in a, just in a few minutes for our audience is to summarize the recent paper. What should, what do you want our manufacturing, C-suite, business um, executive audience to know about what you and your colleagues found um, in researching this latest paper? Yes, of course. Well, to start with, Cliff, we, we like to start with the observation that your productivity is, is hugely important because it's the way that societies get wealthier. It's the way that we generate more welfare across you know, the, the, the full spectrum of firms and, and consumers. Because ultimately, as, a, as an economy, you have the choice of either working more or getting more out of each hour worked. And it's true that when we look at the, the long-term drivers of, of growth and prosperity, you know, labor productivity or the ability to generate more, more output per hour is the way that we get we collectively get wealthier. And when you look back over history, you know, our rate of productivity improvement has tended to, to fluctuate cyclically over many decades. Uh, but after a, a, a recent uh, heyday between 1995 and 2005, where we experienced quite rapid productivity growth, I think what many people fail to realize is that we've actually seen quite a substantial slowdown in the in the United States. Uh, and in fact, compared to long-term historical rates of about 2.2% annually, uh, since 2005, we've really improved only at 1.4% annually. And while those might seem like small differences, they really compound and add up to a great deal over time. 
in fact, what we what we estimate is that if we could return ourselves to the historical rate of 2.2% over the next nine years, that would actually add $10 trillion to our, our, our cumulative economic output, uh, which represents a, a substantial welfare uh, boost to, to each household, representing about $15,000 per household in, in 2030, which is you know, three to five times as much as, as was uh, uh, you know, dispersed in the stimulus packages a few years ago, which was viewed as a lot at the time. So this, this topic really matters. And it's an area where we've seen uh, a tremendous amount of, of um, academic research and, and interest over the last few years. But I don't think it's as broadly appreciated by many, many business leaders how much productivity matters, nor the extent to which we've seen a, a slowdown over the last few years, despite all of the really exciting improvements in technology and, and, uh, and some of the recent um, you know, advances in areas like AI, et cetera, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. So we undertook the paper, you know, not only to, to really put a size against this, but start to understand, you know, what are the patterns of productivity? What can we learn from the places where it's gone well? You know, what are some of the challenges that we confront as we look out over the next decade and, and what can we do about it? And, you know, what was fascinating is while the aggregate picture has, has shown a slowdown, when you look across the U.S. and we analyzed it across, you know, four different lenses, you actually see a, a story of, you know, some doing quite well and a story of others that have fallen behind. You see this very clearly at the state level, which is not a, a lens that many people think about. You know, the U.S. is obviously a unified market. You, you tend to think about um, you know, there being a lot of reasons for convergence between performance in different, different parts of the country. But actually what you see is that a handful of states have really pulled ahead of others in terms of productivity, that they've gotten, they've started at a higher level of productivity and they've actually gotten much more productive. And in contrast, that there's actually a, a, a set of lagging states that have not only started below, but are, but are falling further behind. And that's quite a difference from what we've seen historically, where um, you know, states have tended to converge over time over the last hundred years or so. So the first sort of rec recognition that we have is that actually, you know, this picture of productivity performance geographically is quite is quite mixed. Um, secondly, you know, when you look at it by sector, what you see is that there's a handful of sectors that have actually done extraordinarily well in terms of their productivity improvements over the last 15 years. You know, sectors like information and software, finance, these are the sectors that have really led. Um, and in contrast, there's a there's a set of sectors that have really fallen behind that are the, the lagging sectors in, in primarily service industries like healthcare or construction that are both less productive, but also not improving their productivity. The trouble is the sectors that are fastest growing at the top only account for about 15% of employment. So we have a challenge as the economy. If we want to transform the aggregate growth, how do we take these sectors that are representing um, most of employment. In fact, when you look at the, the, the two least productive kind of groups of sectors, they are together two thirds of the economy. How do we take those and really drive a significant improvement in, in productivity performance? Because uh, short of that, it's going to be hard for us to return to those historical growth rates. And then thirdly, you know, when you look at actually within sectors, it's fascinating. But what you see is that actually there's extraordinary diversity of, of, of productivity there. And this difference between what we call the frontier firms and the lagging firms is quite profound. In, in manufacturing, which I know is of particular interest to this audience, we see that actually the top firms versus the 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 ninetieth firms, as the uh, sorry the, the bottom fir the firms, as defined by the difference between the tenth and the ninetieth percentile, is really a five x productivity difference there. 
Um, and what's more is that gap is that gap has grown wider over time. And so this phenomenon of, you know, not only are there differences across sectors, but within sectors, at least a this productivity dispersion that's at least as large is quite striking. Uh, and the question is, how do you start to think about you know, what it's going to take to take some of those laggards and move them closer to the front, frontier firms, who, to be clear, are growing just as fast, if not faster, than the historical productivity growth rates. And then finally, bringing it all together, we, we looked at cities as well. Uh, and you mentioned sort of being in a hotspot of Silicon Valley. Well, it turns out that Silicon Valley is one of those hotspots of, of eight kind of metropolitan areas that have both more productive and, again, have, have exceeded the average productivity of other cities in the U.S. and, and really taken off. So, you know, as we look across these four, these four lenses, states, sectors, firms, and cities, what you see is that actually, you know, the challenge that we face is not so much that we aren't seeing productivity growth anywhere, but we are seeing it in a few places, but not broad-based enough to really drive the aggregate performance to where we, where we need to be. And what we then call out in our paper is that as we look forward, there's a set of challenges as we think about how do we return more of the economy to those, those former levels of productivity growth, we're going to have to confront, uh, and those represent some looming headwinds. These include things like labor shortages, um, you know, particularly among skilled labor. This includes the challenges that we face around technology adoption, where we see technology everywhere, but the benefits have not been broadly shared. Uh, we have a more challenging set of financial market conditions, which may challenge our ability to invest in the way that we, we could in the last two decades. You know, fourth, we need to manage an energy transition that's going to introduce a trade-off between how fast we move to a, a, um, a clean energy future and the affordability of doing so. And then lastly, we're, we're operating within a very different global environment, one that will challenge us much more so uh, in terms of the cooperative economic rules that, that have arguably benefited productivity over the last few decades. So, you know, with those, with those headwinds, you know, we do see a substantial, um, you know, imperative for both policymakers and business leaders to really think about productivity and think about what they and each of their positions can, can really do to start to, to unlock more of that, that growth within the, within the economy. And we outline a number of, of potential areas that, that we think are, are right for examination ranging from how to develop, you know, address some of the workforce shortages and, and, and drive more skilled labor, um, how to, to, to really get more benefit from, from technology, uh, and then how to think differently about you know, the, the energy transition as well. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, but you know, as, as you can tell, we've, we've tried to lay out at least a framing around the sets of issues that we think are, are really important to address on, on this, uh, you know, this issue, which we think is among, among the most important for uh, for, for your listeners. Well, one issue that always does come up in, in productivity discussions that I've been involved in, whether it's with economists or business executives or reading papers, is data quality, measurement issues. They have become central to so many productivity analyses, productivity uh, discussions. Now, we can have an entire show um, about that. But one thing I wanted to ask you with regards to data, since we are, you know, uh, we have to think about the post-pandemic world is work from home. All of a sudden, the question of what constitutes an hour becomes a little more difficult than um, it used to be. Is work from home is the work from home phenomenon, assuming that it sticks around and doesn't look like it's going to, is that going to make it more challenging to measure productivity? I think it will for the for the the, the occupations are being affected. So it's important to recognize, and there's some great work that's been done by Robert Gordon and others out there. That when we look at the, the impact of work from home on on uh, on productivity, 
you can really think about you know different groups of occupations that have that have disproportionately benefited, and some others that have either been you know unaffected or or um, perhaps even slightly negatively affected by the by the, the the pandemic restrictions. For the for the types of work that can be done well from home, and I think of think of a lot of your classic knowledge worker categories in this case, including consulting, for example. You know what you tend to find is that the the, the ability to work from home has been tremendously beneficial, at least in the short term. And uh, we did see a significant productivity boost. Some of that we also saw was accompanied by actually an increase in the number of hours worked, at least there's a number of surveys that have documented this. But I think what, what you do raise is, a, is an important point, which is actually the measurement of you know, the, the denominator in this case of what's the output relative to the denominator of the hours worked, I think is getting more challenging to measure. And I think that is one of the, the, the data challenges that we face in actually being able to, to, to correctly estimate and understand what the impact of the pandemic and in particular on remote work has been. Um, you know, and I think it's fair to point out that there's a number of economists that are, that are working tremendously hard to actually you know, correct for some of these errors. Uh, it's not to say that it will be perfect, but I think we have a good handle on the places where we expect the errors to show up and the potential biases that might, might lead to. Um, I think the broader question is, do we believe that the productivity benefits from from uh, remote work are going to be sustainable, and we'll see those endure, irrespective of of measurement error or not? You know, uh, in, uh, some of the, some of the questions that I prepared for you today, including this next one, are, are partially generated from conversations I've had over a long period with people. And in in talking about the productivity malaise, uh, and and it's it's been a, a while now. It's not. It's a it's a, a post financial crisis productivity malaise in in the manufacturing sector. People often say to me, "Well, the the straight the answer is is straightforward. Technology. If tech, if, if of a new machine, a new technology can do it faster or substitute for uh, a person in doing it, that solves the um the productivity pay." Uh, um, problem but the research the, the the very good research uh and certainly McKinsey has added tremendously to this um is saying that while well, technology implementation certainly matters my impression is it's not the whole answer it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for getting us out of this productivity malaise am I correct in that yeah you're you're exactly right and I, I think you put that very well Cliff I mean what we see is that simply adding technology to existing businesses, existing processes tends to yield minimal, if any, benefits at all to, to, to productivity. To really capture the benefit requires companies to reconfigure how they operate, how they do work, um, you know, at the level of, of the, of the frontline processes um, to take the benefits of, the of that technology. And very often that means reconfiguring workflows. It means rethinking talent and some of the, the skill sets of the people involved. Uh, and thinking about how to deploy that technology in the most um, the most effective way, um, and all of that together takes managerial capabilities as well, because it's the it's the leadership and the managers that are ultimately the ones that need to to shepherd the organizations through this kind of change. And there's a great deal of research that's come out recently um, that really calls out what what what's being referred to as sort of a J curve of technology transition, which is as you see technology investments being made, and, you know, initially you might see little of you know, and even negative impacts on productivity as companies undertake this kind of reconfiguration. And if they do so successfully, ultimately they come out the other side and get a get a huge boost. Uh, but that can be a multi-year journey. And it's a, a journey that that not every company trans you know, traverses successfully. 
Um, but I think you're coming back to your your point. You know, I think the the days of looking at it as well, I can add, you know, just add technology into an existing business and expect, you know, significant productivity improvements on the other side, I think are really, are really behind us. I think that that, you know, there's there's a long literature now, um, you know, uh, that really documents the need to actually be thinking about how do I add technology with complementary investments in both my organizational capital and my and my talent to be able to get the benefits of this. I want to stay with the technology theme just for a second, because I have to ask about artificial intelligence. I mean, you can't go through a 24-hour period without, you know, some hearing or participating in some discussion. So I'll, I'll, I'll ask a simple question. What can, I mean, to the best of your judgment and the judgment of your uh, research colleagues, what do you think artificial intelligence, for all that we're scared about it, what do you think it's going to do for productivity? Is it going to, is it going to be helpful eventually in getting us to the uh, the product point in the productivity curve where we really want to be, where we really need to be? Yeah. So the, the, you know, this is a this is a, a a deep question and uncertain question. Um, you know, I think the error bars on predictions here are probably quite large. Yeah, I'm hopeful that actually it, it will lead to to pretty significant productivity improvements, and it's probably going to be isolated first to a certain set of occupations or use cases that you know find themselves most um, benefited by some of the recent advances around foundational models, large language models, and such. Um, you know, I think that of course we'll go through the same sort of muddling through period that I just talked about on the J curve, which is. As we figure out how to really capture the benefits of that, I think it may take longer than we than we expect. Um, but I do think that the benefits that that, that AI and and related technologies can bring will will be real um, and ultimately deliver some some quite significant improvements within within certain sectors of the economy. You know, one one of the things in in the productivity literature that kind of fascinates me is this this wide this even within this narrow industry segments, this wide dispersion, where some individual companies are acing the productivity exam, and others are failing the uh, the productivity exam. And we have what what is what you refer to your colleagues refer to and that the economic literature refers to is the, you know, the frontier firms and the laggards. Now, at least to me, that suggests that management practice matters overall in productivity. And uh, I, I know that's been hard for economists to study management practice because up until a while ago, we haven't had much in the way of real data to do that. But I think that's getting better. So I'm going to ask you, has, has the economic literature done any study, any significant study to help us understand how management matters to broader productivity outcomes? Yeah, so this is a fascinating topic, and I, I think probably there's two points to to, to make here. Um, first of all, on the on the the characteristics of the frontier versus the laggards, I think there's an interesting set of observations around what some of the characteristics of those frontier firms are, and we go into some of that in our in our paper, where you know you do tend to see that they are more effective at leveraging what we call intangibles, things like intellectual property ideas, as well as investments and things like brand or or skills. Um, to deliver productivity and get advantage in their particular companies. They are also disproportionately better at attracting skilled talent uh, and also tend to be you know, more connected globally as part of global value chains. Uh, and so I think a lot of those characteristics gives us some hints in terms of 
this sort of you know, modern production function that requires bringing technology skills together with uh, with an access to open markets to be able to to really capture the benefits. But there's a missing component to that as well, which I think you call out around managerial capability. And I think that's the second point here, which is there's a a, a, a body of literature that is uh, quite recent in the in the economics literature that really looks at the quality of management and tries to understand how much does it drive performance. Um, you know, this is done by by folks like you know Nicholas Bloom and others. Um, and you know, the finding has been look that that you know management really matters, and it matters a great deal not only in terms of understanding uh, and predicting overall productivity performance. But anecdotally, what we can see is that management really matters in, in these times when uh, companies need to change and they need to, to adapt and adopt these new technologies to get to get benefit. So I think, you know, while you know, there's still a lot more to be studied around the issue, uh, I think that, that we can be clear that you know, managerial capabilities really do play a, a quite a critical role in getting the, the in driving productivity and in getting the benefits in particular of these new practices around technology and intangibles. Partially due to the pandemic, although it started somewhat before the pandemic, we are seeing a welcome increase in the pace of business startups um, in the United States. Uh, for a while, it, that was uh, lagging significantly and the business dynamism was a, a, a concern. Um, a lot of new firms coming on. Uh, we know that uh, you know, a lot of them fail. Uh, a lot of them don't make it. But is the phenomenon of a, an increased pace of business startups is that going to be a boost for productivity, at least eventually? Yeah, we would hope so. You know, I think one of the the, the factors that you know has been striking in the literature, and and we do um, you know call this out in our paper as well, is that when we look at some of the declines in productivity um, over the last two decades in the U.S., it's been accompanied by you know declining rates of new business formation. It's been accompanied as well by declining labor reallocation across firms. And those have together painted a, a picture around business dynamism. And the worry has been, is this decline in dynamism partly to account for why we're seeing declining productivity growth as well? Um, and you know, there's a there's a school of thought that actually, you know, these things are quite closely linked, even if you know causally it's hard to make that linkage directly. So I think we can give we can be optimistic that you know the entrance of a number of new business startups would ultimately help productivity growth in the in the long run. And certainly. You know, we view a, a, an economy where there is more uh, net startup creation as being a, a sign of health rather than a, a sign of concern, uh, and we think that that will that that will help in the long run. Exactly how much is hard to say, uh, and I think it's an issue that that needs to be continued to be studied. But but certainly, it's a it's a positive sign coming out of the out of the pandemic. With all of, I have I have a big table behind me. I'm going to I'm going to see it all major federal policy, federal and state policymakers now. And I'm going to give you a chance to, to say, if you had to recommend to all of them a uh, productivity policy program, what 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 federal and state policymakers need to do to get us out of this unacceptable uh, productivity malaise, what would you tell them to do? So, yeah, we as a as a as a rule don't don't opine on specific policy measures, uh, Cliff, but I do think you know there are a few specific areas that are worth examining, and I think quite are quite directly followed from the analysis that we've done. You know, first of all, you know it's clear that the places that are growing more productive, you know, are all have have the unified characteristic of of attracting a lot of skilled labor. 
And we have this issue across the US where we've just simply got a some demand and supply mismatch. And so we need to figure out how do we unlock some of that workforce of the future. And this could take many, many different forms. You know, number one, I think looking at reskilling programs, you know, different different avenues through which we can help our workforce build their skills in a in a um in in a way that meets people at different stages of their career journey, I think is quite is quite critical. Secondly, I think as we look at you know things like skilled immigration and we looked at things like non-compete laws that prevent people moving between jobs, I think we need to we, we need to look at those and understand how do we increase both the you know immigration into the US, but also the availability of the labor within the US that could be constrained by things like non-compete clauses, the way that state benefits are set up, the way that you know housing costs, for it, as an example, compose impose barriers. Uh, and then lastly, when we look at kind of our, our labor force participation, you know, we also have this challenge that that has been at uh, at recent lows uh, and, and in contrast to many other countries has been declining. Uh, and so there's a question of, well, are there also some, some areas that we could look at to better retain the skilled labor that we have? You know, this can mean flexible work, work policies for, you know, uh, you know, aging workers that are that are otherwise considering leaving the workforce. This can also mean options that improve the ability for for parents to stay in the to stay in the workforce through better childcare and other areas. So I'd say there's one macro theme, Cliff, around you know how do we help support the the transition of our workforce to a more skilled workforce and the workforce that we need in the future. I say I think there's a second theme around you know intangibles and in, in the role that they play in the in the economy. And I think that there's a, a whole set of policies that you know probably need to be looked at recognizing the, the critical important role that intangible investment has, but also the impact it can have around things like intellectual property, competition rules, and so on within certain sectors. Um, and then lastly, you know, as a, as a sort of federal level policy matter, you know, continue to support some of the public R&D investment that's been so important over the years. That's probably not a short-term win, but over the long-term, you know, the, the data suggests that the the, the social benefits of, of government investment in in um, in R and D are, are are quite substantial. Um, you know, the third I would say is around the energy transition, and I think there's a lot that federal federal and state level policymakers can do to you know help companies um, you know deploy capital more effectively, support innovation, um, even you know ease regulations around some of the innovation in that sector in particular. Um, and then the last is 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 a somewhat controversial notion, but you know, one of the the striking factors uh, in our in our work is it's very clear that there's a spatial dimension to where we're seeing productivity growth and where we're where we're not. And you know, this notion of what's what's been termed place-based policies has a controversial history in the literature. And there's many, you know, many studies that have been mixed in terms of the evidence of their effectiveness. But there's at least case examples of places where it has been quite effective. And so, you know, one of the areas that we would we would suggest is that. You know, we need to explore and reopen some of that discussion around, you know, how do we better address some of these places that are being left behind? Uh, and what are some of the policy levers that are proven to be affected, effective? And what are some of the things that we can do to really open up opportunities in those in those areas? So those are kind of four big themes that I would I would maybe highlight here in terms of a in terms of an agenda, at least from a from a federal and state policymaker perspective. Well, thank you for that. Uh, you know, sometimes difficult situations give rise to positive behavioral positive outcomes. Now, I mean, you know, American businesses, manufacturers included, are facing constraints on the labor force side. One thing we have, a, we're starting to see an aging curve um, in the United States and many Western economies. And 
within the United States, even compared to other Western economies, our labor force participation rate is oddly low. It's been a, it's been a constant head-scratching source of concern. Um, so putting those two together, and we are, you know, there's no question that we are in a, for a long haul of dealing with difficult labor constraints. Is that going to, uh, is that giving, and will that give rise to productivity enhancing behavior just necessarily? Yeah, we would, we would hope to. I, I, I don't think we've got, you know, I think early returns um, are, are, are mixed, but over time we would expect to see that as, as labor becomes more dear, we would see you know, companies making trade-offs to try to, to augment that and adopt more, um, more both labor-saving technology, but also you know, adapt their operations in a way that can be more labor economizing. Uh, and so we would expect to see, to see some of that um, you know, in terms of the behaviors in the, in the economy. I suspect that it is quite sector-dependent and certain places have more elasticity, as economists like to say, in terms of their ability to to shift, um, you know, in, in response to uh, in response to, to to rising labor costs, um, but no doubt, I think where uh, you know where companies have the option, they're certainly looking hard at ways that they could start to be more economical in terms of how they deploy labor. Final question for Charles Adkins. Uh, my audience would yell at me if I didn't ask you about supply chains. They've been a great source of concern in uh, recent years. Um, hopefully, things are really starting to clear up there is i don't know whether this is an obvious question or an interesting question but i'll ask you anyway is there a clear relationship between supply chain functioning and productivity outcomes you would think there is but i, I how would you articulate it yeah I, I think look it's a really interesting question cliff and i don't think it's one where there's a great deal that's been studied at the macro level on it, but certainly at the micro level of individual firms, we can see that quite clearly, right? I think the the um, the uncertainty and volatility that gets that has been introduced over the last few years by supply chain disruptions has been a significant drag on productivity in in firms that have had to, you know, interrupt their 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 regular planning and their regular operations to deal with that. So I think it is certainly a a, a critical issue. Um, and and plays an important part. I, I think we see that more clearly at the micro level uh, versus what we can what we can tease out from the data you know, across the economy as a whole. But um, but I I think you're right in the sense that you know I don't think we need to need a a study. Uh, you know I think we can all think of individual company examples where it has been quite harmful. Charles Atkins, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me in the think tank today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for, for having me, Cliff. To our audience, thank you for joining us in the coming episodes. We will be looking at the energy transition. We will be looking at critical industries. We'll do an Outlook um, episode because I think it's time to say, you know, where are things going for the economy and for manufacturing, um, generally speaking. Uh, we have a time of certainly heightened uncertainty. Until then, I look forward to seeing you next time in the Think Tank. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.